Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Reading today is from Matthew 18, 1 to 4, um, and then we'll go on to Matthew 19, uh, verses 13 to 30. So, Matthew 18, uh, verses 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, uh, I tell you, unless uh, unless you change and become like the little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So if we jump to uh, Matthew 19, uh, verse 13. Then the people brought the little children to Jesus for him to, place in his, to, for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But this, this, the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went, from there, he went on from there. Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to uh, get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter uh, life, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Um, Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Uh, When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When, Jesus, when the disciples heard this, um, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, uh, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left uh, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit inter- eternal life. But many who are, are first will be last and many who are last will be first. I'm just gonna pray for Steve as he comes up. Father God, we just thank you for this time to gather together to to worship and pray um, as a community, um, and also just to to spend time in your word, uh, learning more about you and and who you've said you are. Uh, And I just pray that you would use uh, Steve this afternoon to to teach us more about you, and would you uh, work through him uh, as he he, um, speaks this afternoon, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonderful. Great to be with you. Week eight in a series called Encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Each week we look at an encounter Jesus has with a different person and we seek to answer a big question our culture is asking. Today we look at a very famous encounter with a rich young man and we're seeking to answer the question, what is 
true success. And next week, we're going to look to answer the question, how do I find contentment? And so the two weeks are part one and part two. What is true success? For nearly a decade, I worked in the tech sector here in Dublin. And as I think about what was put forward as true success in the tech sector, in my company that I worked for, I think there were four things. True success was power. Success is building your career and accruing more power, going up the ranks, moving to the next level, getting the next promotion and the next title. Success means power. Success meant wealth, particularly because I worked in tech sales. Money was a huge motivator. Being successful was to smash your sales targets and get rich. Everyone wanted to know, you know, Steve, can you make good money in there, was the kind of question I get asked. Success meant money, the bonuses, the incentives, the perks, the free gifts. Success in the company I worked for, I think, meant coolness. In other words, whilst accruing power and money, people wanted to get great life experiences and travel the world and do great things and see great sights and, and show everyone on social media how great their life was. And we were rewarded with very glamorous uh, holidays that Leanne and I got to go and enjoy in some very nice parts of the world. Power, wealth, a sense of being cool. And the fourth one, what was held up as true success? Morality. There is a stereotype of those who work in the tech industry that I think has a ring of truth to it. We want to earn a billion dollars and save the world whilst doing it. We want to get mega rich and make sure that we're doing the right thing that our environment and the whole world, and probably our technology is going to be the key to making the world a better place. So one Instagram captures this successful life well. Just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for charity. Look at the sunrise. Hashtag happy. Hashtag blessed. You want to be really rich, have great life experiences, be growing as a manager and a director, and you're very moral. Uh, our, our careers are progressing, our bank balances are growing, our experiences are multiplying, and we are into the environment, to giving to charity, and the late, latest social justice issue about inclusion and people's rights. And we're very passionate, as I discovered, about social justice issues, because we believe we're on the right side of history. So we're morally righteous. And anyone who doesn't join our social justice cause is to be despised. Now, I cannot speak for all industries, but as I think of the 10 years that I worked in the tech sector, those four things, what is true success? To gain power, to gain wealth, to be cool, have great life experiences, and to be really, really moral whilst you do it. By the way, none of those are bad things. None of them are to be despised. In fact, all of them are to be championed in some way. I benefited from all of them in some way. What's interesting about the man in Matthew 19 is it seems that he has all four things, and he was certainly regarded as a success in his day. He has power. Luke's gospel tells us he was a ruler, Luke 18, 18. He had authority. He'd risen up the ranks in his career. He had money. Verse 22 doesn't say he was just wealthy, but he had great wealth. He was in the Forbes 100 billionaires, you know? He was earning good money. He was cool. Why do I say that? Well, verse 20 says he was young. So he's rich. He's in a position of power whilst being very young. He does sound like the founder of a social media platform. He's young, he's successful, and he's cool. People wanted to be like him. I'm sure there were many women that wanted to marry him for his money and power. He was living his best life. 
and he's moral. Well, this comes across very clearly in the story, doesn't it? Obeying the commandments, what good thing must I do? And when Jesus lists all the commandments and says you must love your neighbor as yourself, he says, oh, don't worry, I'm into social justice. I've loved my neighbor. This guy has it all. He had everything you can want. He was a success. And yet, and yet, he wasn't secure in his success. There's a question he doesn't have an answer to. It's a question about his eternity and his destiny. It's often the case that people who are very successful on the outside are often quite insecure and paranoid on the inside. They are anxious and suffer from what is often called for successful people, imposter syndrome. One success, uh, often successful people are not secure people. Well, this man certainly wasn't. So what can we learn about true success from Jesus' encounter with this man? Well, three things. To be truly successful as Jesus defines success, we must redefine greatness and earthly standards, verses 13 to 15. We must renounce self-sufficiency and our reputation. That's the hardest bit. Verse 16 to 28. And we must rejoice in our glorious future and the foretaste we get now. Verse 27 to 30. Redefine greatness and earthly standards, verses 13 to 15. In each of these encounters, Jesus is not only dealing with the person in front of him, he's also educating, training, transforming the mind of his disciples who are also alongside this engagement with this person. He wants to transform the minds of the disciples. So in verse 25, when the disciples realize that this successful, rich, moral man cannot be saved, they say, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, who then can be saved? They'd have picked up, probably from the book of Proverbs and the rabbinical teaching that you know, riches were a reward for your hard work and a reward from God. And if he was moral, and well, surely this guy is you know, a success because God is blessing his life. And well, if he can't get into the kingdom, well, who can? So the disciples needed their minds transformed. They needed to redefine their definition of success. Their understanding of success was the same as the world's understanding. And this is something they've been coming to terms with for the last chapter or so. Hence why I had the beginning of chapter 18 read out, because we read there, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the most successful, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of the child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who is the greatest? Who's the most successful in Jesus' definition? Not the rich and powerful rulers, but the little children. Why? Because yeah, little children are humble? No, little children aren't humble. When you have children, if you've had them, you'll know. Little children are not humble. They're always striving to be first. But little children are, what does it say, verse 4? Lowly. They have no agency and power. They have no money. They are lowly in society. And in the ancient world, they had no rights. So those who are lowly in the world's eyes are the ones that Jesus says are the greatest. And Jesus was the first person in history to give children dignity and rights and care. We'll look at this next week. But the disciples, their mindset was so attuned to the world's mindset that he has to go and say this to them. 
Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead of whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to, be, whoever wants to get to the top, be first, must be slave. Just as a son of man did not come to serve, to, to, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in chapter 18, the lowly, financially poor little children are not the great ones. In chapter 19, this rich, young, moral, successful ruler is not the great one. In chapter 20, the slave and the servant are the great ones. The world's definition of success and Jesus' definition of success are at complete odds. And so that's why he ends the passage. But there are many who are first in this world. There are many in the world that go, they're a success. And they'll be last in the kingdom. And there are many in this world that are last. They're lowly, they're poor, they're despised, they have no agency or power, they have not risen up any ranks anywhere. And we look at them and go, oh, you've written failure. And they'll be great. They'll be first. They'll be a success in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in my kingdom, Jesus says, are the lowliest in this world. The most successful in my kingdom are the ones the world deems a failure. The servant, the slave, the financially poor, the child, the least, the lost. The ones who have to rely on others' provision. The ones who have low income, low status jobs. Not those that have high income, high status jobs. To be truly successful as Jesus defines success, friends, we must redefine our definition of greatness and get rid of the earthly standards. We need our minds transforming. Two, we must renounce self-sufficiency and our reputation. Despite his great wealth and success, he isn't satisfied or secure. So there's a question that drives his whole encounter. Verse 16, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? He'd have made a success of this life he wanted to make a success of the next life. And to be fair to him, that's pretty astute. Jesus had said back in Matthew 16, and Neil took us through this a few weeks ago, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Maybe this man had heard that teaching gossiped around when Jesus told his disciples that. And he thought, oh yeah, well, that's a really good point, Jesus. I don't, I don't want to earn the whole world which he was clearly doing. I mean, he was very rich, he's very successful, he'd risen up the ranks, and he was, I mean, he was gaining the whole world. But he's like, well, I don't want to lose my eternal soul. That'd be a stupid thing to do. He's a mathematician, maybe. It's not worth it. I mean, what can you give in exchange? Like, I could, I could, get, all, I could get all this temporary success and fame and wealth and then lose the only thing that will last forever. Jim Elliott, he is no fool. He gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Maybe the man was wrestling with that idea. But he had a problem. Despite being very astute and realizing he needed to figure out eternity, he assumes he will be able to secure his eternity, his eternal success, the same way he's secured his earthly success. Do you see the problem? What good thing must I do? What good thing must I do? Uh, tell me what I need to do to earn eternal success, 
Uh, tell me, give, give me the rule book. Tell me the standards I need to jump over. Now, I've always, ever since I was a little boy, I always took every rule that was given me and everything I had to, and every time the, the work gave me a standard and I said, oh, I can achieve that and I achieved it. Look, I'm a success. Just tell me what I need to do in your book, Jesus, and I'll, I'll get there. What must I do? And he wanted to have the reputation of doing it, didn't he? But that's not how you get into the kingdom of God. Do you remember? You have to come like a child. And children have no agency or ability to earn their way into this life. They are completely and utterly dependent on the generosity and care of their parents for birth, survival, and success. None of us are self-made people. We were 100% dependent on our parents to bring us into this world and nurture us when we were one and two and could not speak and all the rest. And so Jesus does what Jesus nearly always does when someone comes urgently to him with a question. He answers the question with a question. You ever notice that? Jesus feels no pressure to pander to this man's expectations, timetable, or assumptions, or even give him an answer. He says in verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. He wants to get the man thinking. He wants to get under the man's skin. He, want, he says, you want to talk about goodness? Well, there's only one that's good. There's only one being in this whole universe that's fully, truly, perfectly, eternally good, good enough for eternal life, and that's God. And so, young man, as much as I appreciate your earnestness, you are not good, and you're not good enough. But the blind man, the man is blind. He cannot see or doesn't want to see. So Jesus continues to test him. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquires. And my question is, why not all of them? Why does the, why does the young man assume there's certain ones you have to keep and certain ones you don't have to keep? Well, that's the heart of a legalist. Just give me the minimum. I don't, want to talk, I don't want to talk about the maximum I have to do for you, God. Just give me the minimum I need to do to jump over the bar. That's the heart of a legalist. Which, which ones? T tell me the minimum I have to do. Well, no, that's not how the Christian life works. Give me the standard and I'll jump over. I've always gained earthly success in my own strength and I'll gain eternal success in my own strength and I'll have the reputation of the one who did it. Which ones? So Jesus wants to draw him in some more. Still not giving him what he wants. Verse 18 and 19, Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus lists five of the 10 commandments, numbers five through nine. He puts number five, honoring your father and your mother at the end. And he adds in a summary commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't list numbers one to four, and he doesn't miss number 10. Why? He wants to draw the man in. The man is blind. He can't see, and he says, God, I want you to provoke you. I want you to think. Okay, numbers five to nine, with, about honoring your father and mother last. Well, that's all about loving your neighbor as yourself. And this man, I, I imagine, I mean, he'd, he says to Jesus, and I think he's right, well, I haven't murdered, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't stolen anything, I've never given false testimony, and I've never dishonored my father and the mother. All these external moral things, yeah, Jesus, I've done those. Commandments one to four. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, not to have any idols, 
And number four, what was it again? Yeah, not to earn any money one day of the week or not want to earn any money, but delight in taking a day off to enjoy God and his people. And number 10, that's it. It's not an external thing. Do not cover in your heart someone else's money. Ha! Huh. You see, this guy is so morally external, per- perfectly. He can love his neighbor. He can, he's, he's on the back of every social justice cause in this world about loving your neighbor. But he hasn't loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's regularly been greedy and desired other people's money. And that day off he had to take, oh, it must have annoyed him. It was a day of not earning money. This young man, so morally perfect on the outside, desired money more than God. He had definitely made an idol out of his money, but he can't see it. So verse 20. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Why does he lack anything? It's interesting, isn't it? Despite his moral, moral, respectable life, he says, I still lack something and I know it. He still feels he's not good enough. Despite being morally above reproach, no one could pin anything on him morally. He was spotless. He loved his neighbor as himself. And he still lacks something. What is that about us? It's true for every person that's ever lived deep down. No matter how good, moral, successful you are, I still lack something. What is it? I can't get away from this nagging thing that I lack. And this young man, he's blind. His self-analysis is inaccurate. He cannot see that he loves his money more than God or does not want to see that he loves his money more than God. Money, success, had made him blind to his true spiritual condition. And it's the same for all of us, particularly if you're rich or from a rich background, particularly if you're successful in in the eyes of this world, it will make you blind so often to your spiritual condition. You'll be unable to receive constructive feedback without feeling devastated. You'll want to hide the worst bits of your life and show the best bits to everyone else. And like this man, if you love money and success, you'll be driven and restless and anxious and overwork and irritable and you'll always feel you lack something. And Jesus is lovingly trying to pull him in to self-reflect, to understand his true spiritual condition and the nature of his heart. He doesn't want to condemn this man. He wants to set him free. But this man wasn't free. This man was a slave to his success and reputation, and it must have been relentless and exhausting to always appear so good and so successful. So Jesus wants to set the man free, verse 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Jesus said, I want to set you free from, that, from the money that holds your whole life, that you put your whole identity and your money and your success and your security and validate. I want to set you free and I want to become that. I want to become your identity, security, satisfaction, validation. And for you not just have treasure on this earth, which will go, but treasure in heaven, which will last. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This man couldn't follow Jesus if it meant giving up his money, his reputation, and his well-earned success. So he went away sad. Dissatisfaction remained in his heart. Insecurity about his eternal destiny remained. 
He continued to be a slave in the rat race of this world with an incessant need to defend his reputation. No wonder he went away sad. And that's what often happens to rich people. They're not willing to give up their self-sufficiency, their reputation, and their well-earned success. They can often become very arrogant and overly confident in their opinion of themselves and others because they've made it with money. They know everything about everything now. Then Jesus says to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, riches blind you, the scriptures say. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. You cannot earn eternal life. It's impossible. But you can be given it by a generous heavenly father. How do you get into the kingdom again? Ah, become like a child with no agency of my own to make it in this kingdom. I have to rely 100% on the generosity and bounty of my father in heaven. I have to accept my spiritual bankruptcy and my, my low position and I've earned nothing. And if I can't accept that, I'm not fit for the kingdom. I am completely dependent and I receive salvation and eternal life, not through my good works, but as through, through faith by grace. How so? How does this work? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. For you to receive eternal life, the one who was rich, rich from all eternity, the only one that was good in this story had to become poor and take your sin and transgressions and rebellion and idolatry onto a cross. And he became very poor. So that you, though you were poor, cut off from God, eternally destitute, might become rich and receive his righteousness and a place in his father's, in, in his father's house. His poverty has given us eternal riches. He earned it. He's the hero of the story, not us. He's the one that should be on the Instagram photo, not us. His reputation is the one that's worth being concerned about, not yours. He's the only sufficient one, not you. To be a success in the kingdom of heaven, you have to give up your pride, give up your meritorious good works, give up earthly success defining who you are, give up your self-sufficiency and your reputation and trust wholly on the generosity of your heavenly Father. You won't earn it and you'll be given it. And it'll annoy you if you're a legalist, like this young man who says, no, I want to earn it. To be truly successful as Jesus defines success, you must redefine greatness and earthly standards. We need our mind transformed. We must renounce self-sufficiency and our reputation. But thirdly, we must rejoice in our glorious future and the foretaste we get now. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus is not only engaging with this young man, he's also transforming the minds of the disciples. So Peter, I love Peter. Don't you love Peter? Peter has a good and important question, verse 27. Peter answered, well, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? That's a great question, isn't it? I'm glad he asked it because I don't want to ask Jesus that question. What will be our rewards? We've turned our back on earthly success and reputation and securing our future. What will be given to us? We're following you, Jesus. What do we get? And Jesus' answer is staggering. I mean, it is staggering. In effect, Jesus says, 
you're a spiritual billionaire. You're richer and more successful than you can ever imagine. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Jesus returns and renews this world and brings peace to all aspects of our life, and everyone acknowledges he is the true king of this world, those that have followed him will receive what? Power, a throne, a judge, a judgment seat. We'll be given a throne. The children, the financially poor, the servants, the slaves, the least, the lost, the last, the lowly, the down and outs, the failures, the despised of this world who put their trust in Jesus will be exalted and given a glorious throne. Our legacy and our reputation will be great. Paul says to the Corinthian church, don't you know we will judge angels? No, I didn't know that, Paul. That sounds really interesting. I'm going to one day as a follower of Jesus, I cannot get that kind of status and success in this life. One day I'm going to judge spiritual beings. And there's more, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. If Jesus asks you to leave things to follow him, for this man it was his money, his reputation and his success. Maybe for you it's something else. If you forego something in this life that the world around you assumes is yours by right and you should earn it, and you go, no, for Jesus, I'm going to forego that, you will receive two things, something later and something now. A hundred times as much now and eternal life later. So later you get eternal life. This is what the man wants. And notice he's not going to earn it. What's going to happen? He's going to inherit it from his father. But an inheritance, remember? I can be a spiritual billionaire, but I don't get access to it all now. It's coming my way, and my father will determine when it's time to welcome me home to his eternal kingdom. But we are spiritual billionaires. If we could just imagine what is coming our way, the success in this world, I'd be like water off a duck's back. Because we'll know how successful we really are. Our inheritance is coming. But it's not just all in the future. There's something now. He says a hundred times as much. Not just eternal life in the age to come, but a hundred times as much now. How do I get a hundred times as much now? What's the equation, Jesus? Through the church and through the Holy Spirit, we get a down payment and a foretaste of that future inheritance now. Through the church, the family of God, we discover a sharing of wealth. Money becomes different in the church. We get to use it to bless our brothers and sisters. The early church, it says that they had everything in common and no one counted anything their own. The wealth is shared within the church. But not just wealth, is it? It's homes, it's hearts, it's cars, it's food, it's dinner tables, it's relational connections, it's carrying one, another bur- one another's burdens. Oh, we are so rich when we have the church family. Our spiritual family is a down payment and a, for- a foretaste of that glorious inheritance that's coming. And the Spirit, our ever-present counsellor and advocate, in him we discover a peace that surpasses understanding when this world doesn't give us our success. A contentment and joy that suffering cannot take away. An identity and value that is not based on earthly success or reputation. A meaning and happiness 
that is not based on career progression and your bank balance, and a confidence and poise under pressure that is more than just mere strength of will. As a follower of Jesus, you're a spiritual billionaire with a glorious inheritance coming your way. If you would just rejoice in it and rejoice in the foretaste and the down payment you get now through the church, by the Spirit. Christ City Church, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We're rich in Christ through the church, by the Spirit. A glorious inheritance is coming our way, so rejoice in him. Rejoice in your future. Rejoice in the down payment and the foretaste. What good is it, really, for you to gain everything in this world and yet forfeit your soul? Let's take a moment to pause and then I'll invite the band back and we'll sing. But just where you are, maybe you have a think as we take a moment to pause. What do you currently define as success? And where does your mind need to be transformed? Where do you current, currently prize being self-sufficient and your reputation? And you need to give that up. And what does it mean for you to rejoice in your glorious future? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story that's spoken to your church for over 2,000 years. And we too feel Jesus pulling our hearts towards him and into greater self-understanding. As Psalm 139 says, Search us, O God, and know our anxious ways, and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray you would search us and know us, and we'd know ourselves. We pray that as a church and as a counterculture in Dublin, we would be that. Our values, what we think is success, would be so different to the world. And where we are feeling that we need to earn it, Lord, you teach us what it is to be children. And when we place so much effort and emphasis on the now, we forget what's coming our way and our glorious future. So transform our minds that we might not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but might, might be renewed in your will, your good and perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen.